He taught them as one having authority. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A friend's father is a university professor who begins each term in a special way. On the first day of class, he wears two buttons on each lapel of his blazer. The button on the left says, I'm in charge. The button on the right says, always question authority. I love the image, and I would have loved to have been in Professor Barker's class. What a healthy sense of authority. Well, I'm not sure Jesus had two buttons on his tunic the morning he stepped into the synagogue, but the people there were impressed by his authority. And what we know is that his authority was unlike the scribes. What we are left to wonder and explore is what his authority was actually like. Before we say what his authority is, we should note how much authority he has in Mark's gospel. He has authority to teach in chapter 1. He has the authority to cast out demons, as we've just read. He has the authority to forgive sins, as he'll do the paralytic in Mark 2. And he has the authority to bind up the strong man, Satan, which Mark brings to our attention in chapter 3. The Greek word for authority is exousia, exousia. And Jesus' exousia, while being amazing for some people, made other people very uncomfortable. It still does. And I think it's largely to do with how we understand power and authority in our own day and age. It seems to me that there was a day in our society when authority figures stood up and said in a low, convincing voice, I'm in charge. And that was that. Policemen, government officials, priests. There was a trust in authority. Trust in the people credentialed to do their work. Parental authority worked like this too. When I would ask my parents something like, why, why can't I go to this all-night party on a Thursday night? Because I said so, comes the response. Well, give me a reason. No, go to bed. We're in a new place regarding authority these days, a slow shift away from the traditional way of thinking about authority, away from the traditional authority structures. I think this began about 40 years ago. It had something to do um, with the Vietnam War, with the Cultural Revolution of the 60s. It had something to do with Watergate. And it had to do with the general loss of certainty about what we know for sure and what we can count on. We're not so certain about anything anymore. A famous 1960s bumper sticker put it succinctly, and eloquently, question authority. Maybe you still see one of these decals. They're mostly on old beat up Volkswagens. So there it is, our society trying to wear both pens on its lapels. 
Religious authority, which used to be invested in institutions, now resides with the individual. In uh, his, his famous, much lauded book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella um, uh, did these interviews about religion in America. He interviewed one lady named Sheila. When he asked Sheila about her practice of religion, she said that she was not religious, not interested in church. Faith for her was a safe and internal spiritual comfort zone. She was, she said, her own little church. My religion, she said with amazing candor, is Sheilaism. Sheilaism is individualism raised to the status of authority. We are, we think, in charge here in our own sanctuary. There's no authority beyond my values, my priorities, my opinions, my wants, my personal needs, and my desires. But even here, I think people are unsteady. No one really wants to subscribe to Sheilaism, and no one could ever recommend that as a national religious policy. We want a God, I think, as human beings, we want a God that exists outside of our own heads, outside of my, our personal needs and desires, and yet is also one open to our questionings and wrestlings. I'm in charge. Always question authority. Well, how can we think about authority in our own day? What kind of authority do we need? And what kind of authority might we be open to receiving? A quick thought experiment. Imagine four persons in a room, four persons in a room. The first is a powerful dictator who rules a country. His word commands armies and his shifting moods intimidate his subordinates. He wields a brutal power and authority. Next to him sits a gifted athlete at the peak of his physical prowess, a person whose quickness and strength have few equals. His skills are graceful power, for which he's much admired and envied. The third person is a rock star, whose music and charisma can electrify an audience and fill a room with soulful energy. Her face is on billboards, and she's a household name. She even just goes by her first name. That's still another kind of power. Finally, in this room, we have a newborn, a baby, lying in its crib, seemingly without any power or strength whatsoever, unable even to ask for what it needs. So I ask, which of these is ultimately the most powerful? The irony is that the baby ultimately wields the greatest power. The athlete could crush it and the dictator could kill it and the rock star could outglow it in sheer dynamism. But the baby has a different kind of power. It can touch hearts in a way that a dictator, an athlete, or a rock star cannot. It's innocent, wordless presence without physical strength 
can transform a room and a heart in a way that guns, muscle, and charisma cannot. We watch our language and our actions around the baby, less so around athletes and rock stars. The powerlessness and vulnerability of a baby touches us at a deep moral place. And as I look at Jesus's life and I think about what continues to move me in his life, it's the way he shows powerlessness, weakness, even vulnerability to be the way to heal the world. The Gospels, the Gospels leave so, so much out about Jesus's life. Our questions abound. Did Jesus write? Did Jesus stay up late and watch the stars? Was he an early riser or did he need two cups of coffee to begin to feel up for his day? What was his favorite dish Mary cooked? Did he have a high school sweetheart? The gospel writers could have saved the world from a whole lot of second-rate speculative fiction if they had just shaded in some of these details. But no. They tell us he was born. He lived a life of intense activity and service for three years. And then he died on a cross, as naked as he came into the world. His life was bookended by vulnerability. And the Gospels describe Jesus' power and authority in exactly this way. In Greek, we find three words for power or authority. We easily recognize the first two, energeia, which is related to energy, and dunamis, related to dynamism. There is a power in energy and physical health and muscle, just as there is a power in being dynamic, in dynamite, and having the power to generate energy. But when the Gospels speak of Jesus having great power and his having a power beyond that of other religious figures, they do not use the words energeia or dunamis. They use this third word, exousia, which might be best rendered as vulnerability. Jesus's real power was rooted in a certain vulnerability, like the powerlessness of a child. An authority, an authority that draws one, draws one in with its own persuasive goodness and inspires us at a deeper level. My sister had a baby recently, and I'll often call and FaceTime with her and her family and just let the phone point at Millie. I've noticed something when Millie's in the room. Her rambunctious brothers are learning how to be a little more gentle around her. People aren't allowed to yell. And you never, never hear my sister and her husband arguing. No harsh words or raised voices. Metaphorically speaking, metaphorically speaking, a baby has the power to do an exorcism. It can cast out the demons of self-absorption and selfishness in us. That's why, to my mind at least, Jesus could cast out, out certain demons that others could not. His was an authority unlike the scribes. 
So Jesus comes to the temple, and it seems that maybe the crowd assembled there hadn't come across this kind of authority. Maybe in their imagination, authority was a dynamism or sheer power. Maybe in their religious experience, they'd come to expect a God that would come and clean up the world, boot out the Romans, and reinforce Israel's position in the world. Maybe they expected authority to be raw muscle power that could bang some heads in here in, in the here and now. If this is how they had come to view authority, we shouldn't fault them. It seems only natural. Maybe some, t- some of the times we secretly want an authority like that too, even as we recoil from it in the next breath. But Christ, but Christ, as Annie Dillard says, is always found in our lives just as he was originally found, a helpless baby in the straw who must be picked up and nurtured into maturity. His is an authority that is tender and kind and wants to patiently draw out all that is fearful and hardened in us. We must be patient and let this power more and more into our hearts. For when we lose patience, our hearts grow hasty and we look for a stronger, more muscular form of power. It's only natural. It's why we need a humble savior. We are humans, frail and mortal and prone to getting lost. And we long for an authority we can trust. Our society is one with legitimate concerns about authority. We don't want to be duped or overwhelmed or taken advantage of. But the authority Jesus shows us, it's not one that just wows us or knocks us upside the head. In its tenderness, the shame and fear that we feel is exercised from our hearts. It's an authority in whose company our freedom and truest selves can blossom. Friends, we need not fear. This is the authority in charge of all things.